Welcome to Navigating Education, the podcast. I'm Dr. Matt Rhodes, your host, and today's topic is rural education and how to best support rural educators. And I'm here today with Dr. Casey Jubabowski, who is a 20-year veteran educator who's held many leadership positions and has two books by EduMatch Publishing, and he has over 20 peer-reviewed publications in rural and civic education. And he's internationally acclaimed expert in process management, data analytics, and school improvement, and holds a PhD in leadership and is Lean and Six Sigma Greenbelt certified. And he's also the founder of CTJ Solutions, consulting on data, conflict management, and idea generation. Thank you so much for being here. Dr. Rhodes, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on this beautiful summer day from upstate New York. Oh, it's it's definitely a beautiful day here in San Diego. It's uh, blistering hot. We are in excessive heat warning. I'm not sure if it's as hot as it is uh, here is there, but it's always interesting to talk to people um, about just issues that, for me, to be honest, in terms of rural education, I don't know much about. So I'm here to learn um, more about it from you as well for our listeners to learn from a, an, an expert that has been doing uh, research and in the trenches in rural education for his career. So first, let's talk about a little bit about your context in education, talk a little bit about your uh, history, uh, talk a little bit how you got there in terms of like your different positions and talk specifically about um, just rural education in general. Um, what type of roles did you fit in, in, in rural education? Well, thank you, Matt, so much for this opportunity. I tell you, if you want the in-depth version, my book, Thinking About Teaching, and my other one, A Cog in the Machine from Edumatch, go into real detail about it. But from the 20,000-foot view, I started life as a rural social studies teacher in Southern Tier, New York. Now, many of you may be thinking, wait, New York's an urban state. In pockets, it is. But for the majority of New York, we have more cows than people. We also have more deer than people. We also have more antiques than people. <laughs> One of the other areas that I did is as a rural social studies teacher, I became very interested in school consolidation because the district I was hired into was undergoing a consolidation attempt. And so what I did was I used these experiences of being a rural educator and somebody who is part of what's happening in rural districts where they're being forced to merge to try to understand what was going on with them. I went into higher education. I was an adjunct for a little bit, uh, teaching history. And I also was a school administrator for a while in charge of social studies, but also I worked in school improvement where I would go into districts who are in trouble and I would help them understand their data, their curriculum, and not only that, but their pedagogy. I wanna tell you, I'm super proud of the five districts that I moved out of accountability and the partners who did it with me because everybody needs to have a good partner. And finally, I uh, left those roles and went into higher education where uh, I decided that as a leader in higher education, I had to do what was right. And my career is culminated by me founding this consulting firm so that I can work with, <coughs> excuse me, people <coughs> in districts, 
not COVID, just post-nasal drip. I can work with districts to help improve, and I can also help individuals move from okay to outstanding. Yeah, so you have a you know quite a resume, and you've done a lot so far in your career, and um, so I think that can give us a good lens as to what is the state of rural education. I know that you talk about consolidation. Um, I know that, I mean, before COVID, it seemed like a lot of people were moving out of rural areas to urban areas, but now I feel like there's semi of a reverse. People are moving more into rural areas and more suburban areas from urban areas, but I think that trend is probably going to go back to what it was in the next uh, few years. Um, although we never know if the, you know, with remote work um, becoming more and more popular, people will want to live in those rural areas. But I just know that in our, in, in the United States, for example, um, just when you go into rural areas, especially schools, um, I know that they're underfunded. I know that um, doesn't seem like the infrastructure is taken care of as much as versus urban areas, some urban areas. And there's always a teacher shortage in, in those rural areas. So can you talk a little bit about what is the state of rural education? And before we go and talk about how can we support those, um, those schools in rural areas? Well, Matt, you're raising some great points. And you know, I think for the audience, one of the best things that I have learned as a researcher, as a practitioner, as a scholar, and as a consultant is always get your hands on any book you can read. I love Jennifer Sherman's book called Dividing Paradise, which is about California. And it looks at two different communities in California. Now, there's also been a great book by Elizabeth Kate called Everything You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia. And I also want people to know that we have some amazing rural schools who they're spending both sides of a dollar and getting change back out of sheer grit and will. A uh, school that I taught in um, was trying to make a major review of water quality in a lake and one of the largest rivers that actually terminates in the Chesapeake Bay. Starts in New York and it finishes up all the way away in Delaware. Hi, President Biden, if you're listening. So one of the things that we need to do is we need to also look at places like we've got folks out in Arizona who are creating backpack programs where students can actually take home artifacts to deal with school and to deal with learning that their parents do. I also want to tell the most amazing project I ran into was a group of students who are learning how to recycle ceramics. So what they're doing is they're taking ceramics, they're breaking them up, they're recycling them into essentially um, compounds and creating bricks out of them to build low cost housing for homeless vets. This is awesome and amazing stuff that students are doing. But you're absolutely right when you say it's underfunded. The federal government and many state governments have not provided adequate funding to our rural communities. And we're seeing that in internet speeds. Right now, people who do wanna work from home or when we had the COVID-19 shutdown, if it wasn't for those heroic bus drivers and school techs folks going and putting portable hotspots out, they wouldn't have had internet access at home. And I think those are our real heroes. They're the people who choose to live in those communities 
who have pride in those communities. And, you know, the building may be showing its work progress administration 1920s life, but boy, do they keep those floors polished. They keep the bricks in good shape. And the cafeteria ladies, they don't throw food out. They make sure if a family needs it, it goes home. You know, there was, um, I remember when I was teaching in a rural community, there was a tragic house fire and family lost all of their pets and every single item they owned burned to the ground within 15 hours of the firefighters, all volunteers in the community, by the way, putting the fire out, we were helping them rebuild their lives. Because when a, com when a community is in crisis, it will come together. They just need people to get out of their way, Matt. That's what they need. Yeah, and I and I truly think that just from my experience going to rural commit uh, communities, my parents actually grew up in a small town of about uh, five six thousand in northern Michigan, and just spending a number of summers there and just getting a sense of the community. People in these smaller communities are more likely to collaborate and help each other out um, versus like these urban and suburban areas, and I think just with they they do a lot less uh i mean they do a lot more with a uh, a lot less and i think yeah. that's one of the things that we can take um from these rural com uh, communities in regards to schools as well as just how they um, function to more of our suburban and urban areas so um i want to talk a little bit about we know that there's a major gap in terms of funding and for example if it weren't for uh, individuals taking it upon themselves to provide hotspots and that infrastructure needed for, you know, distance learning during the shutdown, then, you know, what would have happened? You know, we would be back in the 90s and um, essentially, I guess you'd have to pick up packets from school. I'm not sure how that would work, but uh, provide at least opportunity for online instruction. So my, my major concern with with rural America and rural education in general, I feel like that since it's not being funded appropriately, I feel like that there's not as many opportunities and people feel left behind. And I think that that's a major issue in our country and it's causing a lot of, um, I think a lot of partisan divides. So, and I think it all starts with rural education and, and helping these areas out. So what can we do um, as, an urbanite or suburbanite as well as our state governments and federal government can help these rural areas? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Matt. And I think first from what we can do is, you know, contact a teacher in that district. And if you know that your district's receiving a lot of resources and you go through the correct policy and procedures to get rid of materials, instead of throwing stuff out, ask the districts, hey, do, do you need it? You know, do you need maps? Do you need atlases? Garage sales are gold mines. Um, and, you know, it's so funny because I went to a garage sale and they had all of these National Geographic maps that were in pristine condition. I bought the box for $5 <laughs> and I was able to teach geography with those National Geographic maps and use those old National Geographics to help students research. One of the other areas I think that's really critically important is to recognize what resources rural communities have on their own. Exactly. So I, I'm a huge fan of what's called place-based education. And Leanne Avery from SUNY Oneonta 
is such an amazing advocate. Now you have somebody locally, um, her name's Ann K. Schulte. She teaches in the California school system, uh, the college system, where she's a phenomenal expert in the area of rural education. And one of the things Ann always stresses is, number one, use your local resources. If you've got a lumber mill, use the tree rings to teach about, hey, how long has this tree been alive? What did it quote see? You know, are there areas where you've got uh, undeveloped forests that you can teach silviculture and environmentalism? Do you have a pioneer cemetery maybe that you can go and visit and see, oh, you know, do we have an unrecognized veteran of the Civil War here? You know, or do we have somebody from the, the, the uh, Spanish-American War? Or do we have somebody who is engaged in the Native American removal conflict? Do we need to hear those authentic voices? Um, no. I think state, I'm sorry, Matt, go ahead. No, I just said, for, I think just in general, I think what you mentioned is a great point. And I think something that schools, regardless of where they at, can take ways, use their local resources. I mean, I think what this pandemic has taught us at least is that there's so much in our backyards that we can use to support learning. And, and my hope is, is that schools can get students more out in the community Mm -hmm. because that's what they need to, I think, learn different types of jobs, learn different types of social emotional skills, to learn how to talk to people, um, et cetera. And I think there's just so much in our backyard, whether no matter where you live, that you can use and get the community involved that can help students learn about options they can have and how they can make an impact in their own backyard. Yeah, and the state and federal government need to change their format funding formulas. It's not number of students, it's the needs of the students. The second thing is, uh, I hate to say this, but the exams, they gotta go. The exams are not actually testing students for what they need to know. And as somebody who's taught in college, high school, middle school, no, what we need are critical thinkers. We don't need students who can regurgitate the formula of uh, sugar, or can regurgitate menthol form, uh, menth ethanol formula. We need a student who can come together and do the work to realize and figure out how to make ethanol into something that's environmentally friendly. Or what we need, and this is even more critical, is instead of students writing about what citizenship looks like, actually having them participate in a local democracy. Their town boards, their school boards, their village boards, their county boards need to hear from our teenagers about what's going to help them be better citizens. And I would say number one area is allow them to be entrepreneurs early. Allow them to start businesses. And I'm not talking about lemonade stands. I'm not talking about selling candy. I'm talking about literally what do community needs and what can they invent? You know, I think it's great that we have students who will look at ways to prevent bullying, who will look at helping injured animals, who will, well, who will figure out ways to help their fellow classmates, but they need the adults to guide them, not to direct them. No, 100%. And I think that just 
I mean, we're going to talk about like two or three practices that you recommend that we can take from rural education. And I think this is just what you just mentioned. One is just one in general that we can all use is that entrepreneurship piece and give our students that agency and opportunity to actually be an entrepreneur, invest in them, give them a thousand dollars to start the school year and see what they come up with. We just had a business project in my math class recently, and I had a number of students that didn't tell me all year, but they're actually running a business. Um, one, a couple of the ladies were running uh, and just like esthetician type businesses. And then I had a gentleman that was cut, uh, having a wood cutting business that he was selling in his house. Um, so, you know, and the students were really excited about that opportunity to share. And that had, we did essentially Shark Tank where they pitched the idea and the classmates voted on whether they, they would fund them or not, essentially. And just that idea of then taking just those opportunities, like you said, in the community that is needed and they can use those young minds to develop solutions or things the community could uh, utilize. And not only that, but it'll also prevent, Matt, one of the biggest issues we have, which is what Karin Kafelis in their book, Hollowing Out the Middle talked about, mm. which is we have students who think the only way they're gonna be successful in life is if they leave. And those leavers need to see the opportunity to stay. You know, I, I think it's critical that we do infrastructure like the internet. We do critical infrastructure with buildings. How many old dilapidated buildings are out in rural America that need to have a little bit of TLC put in them? You know, here in New York State, um, <clears throat> we, uh, we just had a major increase in our craft brews. Shout out yep. to our fellow Edge of Match publishers who run the Beer EDU podcast. You know, but I, and I know in California, you have such an agriculture economy as well as a tourism economy. Yep. You also have Silicon Valley as well. We have Tech Valley. You know, there are places in Iowa and Kansas and Nebraska where my goodness, they've probably got solutions out there for big problems that we haven't figured out. But the Shame is nobody's asked those students. So I think that's a first practice for rural education that we do really well is, is that we really get to know our students and we really ask them what they think and we listen to them because it's less about control and it's more about coaching. Now, of course, we have a bunch of people who are control freaks, which I wish they'd leave education, but you know, honestly, we need to be more of coaches. We need to look at ways to consult. We want classrooms to be messy, dirty. We want them to have great ideas going on, explosions. You know what they used to say when we were young teachers, Matt, a quiet classroom is an effective classroom. I would say a quiet classroom is an intellectually dead zone. And who wants to go to school in a dead zone? Yeah, no, totally. And I, I think that there's a lot to be said about, um, you know, getting rid of a lot of these standardized uh, tests and providing opportunities for students to actually have that agency and voice and be assessed by their entrepreneurship and ideas to help the local community and themselves is, is I think, something that could revolutionize education. And I think also, too, the world that we live in now is that you and I may have both doctorates, but we're always having to learn learning how to run businesses, learning how to market, learning how to write even better, learning how to use uh, our networks. I mean, there's so much that we're learning all the time and providing opportunities for our students to become those lifelong learners because the world is changing faster, I think, than sometimes that we can learn, but at least providing them 
those skills to be those learners to adapt to our changing world. And I think that a couple of those practices that you uh, just mentioned uh, just nailed uh, it right on the head there. Yeah, and you know, huge shout out to my brother Nick, who works at Erie County Community College. Yesterday, he allowed me to uh, work with his tractor because we had to do some uh, yard work um, over at his house. And uh, I'd never really done that before. And, you know, I've always been kind of the brainiac of the family. The joke was the only oil change I got to do was driving it to the oil change place. <laughs> but my brother gave me how to do it, and I did it. And, you know, we were looking at our great grandfather's piece of farming equipment that's at the house. And, you know, we were both marveling at the simplicity of that mechanical engineering from the late 1800s, early 1900s. And, you know, I thought that that's something that we need students, urban, rural, suburban to learn, our ancient technologies. After all, the Roman aqueducts have been up for 2000 years and they still work. You know, the, the, the Parisian tunnels still carry water into Paris. So not everything has to be up front. We need people who are craftspeople. We yep. need people who can use ancient technologies, but we've got to repurpose them, yep. you know? And that's where I think it's going to be so cool. And I'm very proud that my brother showed such, such amazing patience with me <laughs> as I didn't break his tractor because, oh boy, that's an expensive piece of equipment. No, totally. And I, I think just, I think you just talked about your last recommendation in a nutshell, just allowing students to tinker, look at those types of pieces of, I mean, the tractor, I think it's a piece of infrastructure, to be honest, that helps you grow um, food in the local area to go to a local farmer's market or to sell, sell somewhere else. Um, just allowing the students to investigate, see those types of technologies and things that they can get their hands wet and then see about how they could, you know, learn how they work one, but also two, um, understand how they can make the technology better or use it just for our everyday purposes. And, and I think just that field education is, is essential. Yeah, and you know, Marie Curie, who uh, her, her maiden name was actually Polish. Um, she is the only person in the world to win a physics and a chemistry Nobel prize. She didn't have a formal education, she tinkered. And she learned through experimentation. Matt, we need to reinforce that experimentation. We need to reinforce that structured, not structured play where you set up the boundaries, but structured opportunities. And again, you go to some of these places where the technology is broken and they're selling it for 30 cents or 50 cents or whatever, or a garage sale, gold mine, buy stuff. Ask students in your class if you're doing science, hey, tear apart those old radios I got for a buck each and figure out how they work and then build something using the pieces you've salvaged. You do whatever you want to. Because first the students are gonna be like, oh my God, we get to destroy something. And then they're gonna be like, wait, what the heck are we gonna do with this? And then they're gonna be like, oh, that was interesting. And at the end of the day, you've gotten through transistors, electricity, circuits, you've gotten through all your state standards, and you didn't do one test prep question. Yeah, and with that, uh, thank you so much for being here. That's the perfect way to end on. Uh, 
I appreciate your work. And where can our listeners uh, follow you on uh, social media and just see what you're working on? Yeah, so I am all about the Twitter. I'm at KCJ underscore EDU. I also have a Weebly page. Um, which uh, hopefully your show notes will show. Yes, it will not, be on the show um, notes. Yeah, cool. Um, but I always refer it. I have a blog post going. Uh, I also have a Facebook page called Thinking About Teaching and CTJ Solutions. Google me, email me, Twitter me, LinkedIn me. You know, if you just want to jam for a little bit, I'm always awake at weird hours. Huge shout out to my AAER friends from rural Australia. Because, you know, rural at Oz and I get along when it's 2 a.m. Eastern and it's 2 p.m. their time. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much and uh, have a great day, everyone. Uh, catch you all later.